Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. You're listening to The Economist Asks. I'm Anne McElvoy. And this week we're asking, win or lose, what's next for the Republican Party? John Bolton is President Trump's former national security adviser. They parted ways after repeated policy feuds. He says it's very important to move the Republican Party beyond Trump, especially if the sitting president contests the election result. This is, I think, a moment of truth and character for all of us. If Trump tries to sow confusion, it won't be the victorious Democrats who get him out of office. It will be Republicans who make it clear that his conduct is no longer acceptable. Mr. Bolton is talking to fellow Republicans making post-election plans, and he has a vision for how the party should look. The Democrats would like to do nothing better than to characterize the Republican Party as being Trump's party, which it is not. The Republican Party remains fundamentally a Reagan-esque party. Uh, And I think there are uh, ways of of, uh, adding to many of the voters that uh, Trump has brought into the party. If you're a Republican who wants Donald Trump out, would you vote for Joe Biden or might someone else take your fancy, alive or dead? I I was thinking about writing in the name of Ronald Reagan uh, for president this year, but I I finally concluded he was unavailable. Yes, it's a shame we can't just all choose our favourite president from history. And as President Trump confirmed his third Supreme Court appointee this week, does our guest think that's a great achievement for the Republicans? John Bolton, welcome to The Economist Asks. Thanks for having me. Glad to be with you. You've written a book, The Room Where It Happened, in which you accuse President Donald Trump of asking China for help to win a second term and of kowtowing to authoritarians. It is a damning account for the president. He denies the allegations you make. Are we to take from what you say that you want President Trump to lose the upcoming election? Yes, I'm, I'm not going to vote for him for the first time in my adult political life uh, I'm not going to vote for the Republican nominee for president. I'm not going to vote for uh, Joe Biden either. But uh, I think President Trump has done damage to the United States during his first term, both domestically and internationally, Uh, although I'm optimistic that the damage can be repaired fairly quickly. If he had a second term, however, I think uh, some of that damage might become irreparable and would cause the country grave harm. And what do you think is going to happen in the election? Well, uh, everybody uh, is uh, still traumatized by 2016 when uh, every pundit, every pollster, every, uh, everybody you could find on the street thought Hillary Clinton was going to win. Obviously, she did not. Uh, and so many people are saying, despite the fact the polls show Biden ahead both nationally and in the key battleground states, he, he may yet lose. And uh, I, I do think that's a, a possibility. But uh, what I've said is that At this point, I would bet a dollar that Biden wins, but I won't bet any more than that. A dollar. So we can come back if we can take a dollar off you. Okay. It's on the table, right? 
And President Trump denies the allegations strongly that he made and he, he dished it out to you. He called you a washed up guy and a liar whom everyone in the White House hated, he said. What did you make of that particularly sort of vociferous pushback there from the president? Well, I wonder who hired that guy, Bolton. Maybe he ought to be the one who's fired. <laughs> I suppose that point goes straight straight back to the the, the president. But it, it, you have been critical uh, of others you've served under, including George W. Bush. You served under him as ambassador to the, the UN. And The Economist called you someone who has few allies and wears out his welcome. Did we have a point? Well, I tried to tell the truth in both books. And I wrote a book after I left the Bush administration. You know, I think it's important for the American people to know what actually goes on in the government. Uh, without any sugar coating. Uh, so I don't uh, uh, apologize for writing about the truth. I think people will uh, read my most recent book. Uh, they'll make up their own minds whether they agree with it or not, and uh, they, can, they can make their judgments accordingly. But both books are there for history, and uh, history will judge. I suppose the question is one of temperament, both politically and as a, a, a writer. Well, you criticised George Bush and you served under him. You, you did the same under Donald Trump. So I, if anyone said, look, you're a perpetual member of the awkward squad, would you put your hands up to that? Well, no, I don't think so. I think I, I uh, tried to be objective in, in both books. And I did uh, criticise President Bush and he wasn't wild about the criticism. That's, uh, that's for sure. But I think I gave him credit where I thought credit was due. And uh, I think I gave credit to President Trump where, pres where, where it was due. It's not like this is the first book that anybody has ever written about an administration they served in. And uh, it's not the first book written during the incumbency of the president involved. Bob Gates wrote about his time as Secretary of Defense uh, uh, during the Bush and Obama years, and it appeared while Obama was still president and Hillary Clinton, whom he criticized, was inconveniently running for president. Uh, George Tenet, the director of the CIA, uh, in the, in the uh, Clinton and Bush administrations wrote his book when George W. Bush was still president. So it's, a, it's fairly commonplace in, uh, in American life. Uh, president Trump reacted, I thought, really with uh, giving me a great compliment. He tried to suppress the book. That, that I think, uh, tells you a lot about what he really thought of it. Do you think he expects to lose the election? Uh, you know, uh, he, he won't lose the election because uh, he never makes mistakes. The election will be lost because of the mistakes of others. And I do think, uh, seriously, th this is a, a problem that we're going to have to resolve after the election. If he does lose, uh, there will be from Donald Trump a stab in the back theory. There will be recriminations. I think it's very important uh, if he loses to move the Republican Party beyond Trump. But I don't think he's going to go graciously, and I think we're ha we have to think about how to handle that. Well, it's interesting. I, I just want to, to come to that. What do you think Republicans will do if President Trump should refute a, an electoral defeat? Well, he, he, he can't refuse it in the sense there is a web of constitutional and statutory authority uh, that will move him out of office if he, if he loses. I think what he's doing now is laying the groundwork... Uh, uh, for confusion in the aftermath of the election uh, in the hopes that if he does lose, he can still play for something uh, after November 3rd. He will find that's futile because the system is set up in a way uh, that he can't, he can't bluff his way through this forever. 
and I think the secondary purpose that he's uh, undertaken is to uh, lay the basis for the excuses that he will use as to why others lost the election for him. I think that's part of it as well. You've, you've said previously you've been in touch with Republican senior elected officials and lots of others connected to this scenario, or possible scenario. I think they're ready for this moment. You didn't quite say what you meant by that. What, what do you think Republican officials w- would do in the event of this being contested? Well, I think at that point uh, you will see a lot of Republicans who... Uh, were not necessarily very vocal in their criticism of Trump, uh, insist nonetheless that he honored the outcome of the election. This is, uh, I think, a moment of truth and character for uh, for all of us. If, uh, uh, if Trump tries to sow confusion, it won't be the victorious Democrats who get him out of office. It will be Republicans who make it clear that his conduct is no longer acceptable. Now, you can say, well, they should have done that a long time ago, and I... I put myself in that camp. That's why I wrote a 500-page book. But uh, th- this, is a, this is a real moment of truth uh, if, if he tries to resist the actual outcome of the election. Now, the U.S. Senate has just confirmed Judge Amy Coney Barrett to the Supreme Court. That's clearly a victory for President Donald Trump pretty much at the, the last hour. I think it's his third appointee. What do you make of that? Well, I think uh, presidents are elected for four-year terms. Uh, senators are elected for six-year terms, and their authority exists within that period of time. And just for the historical record, uh, back uh, very close to the time of the founding, when the people involved were participants in the drafting of the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, who who knew what these things meant, uh, John Adams, the second president, nominated John Marshall to be Chief Justice of the Supreme Court after he was defeated in the 1800 election. So that's even later in the electoral cycle. And a Senate, which had largely been voted out of office in that same election, confirmed John Marshall in seven days. So the historical record here is uh, is pretty clear. The authority exists constitutionally, uh, and, uh, and, and it's happened in many cases since John Marshall and before Amy Coney Barrett. It sounds like you don't really think he's pulled a fast one. Of, co- of course not. No? How, how, how can it be a fast one? He's the president of the United States. There's a vacancy on the Supreme Court. What's he supposed to do, stare at it? Well, some, sometimes presidents have chosen to stare at it, haven't they, and said it was the wrong time in the electoral cycle and you could wait. Yeah, the, the history, which I think was laid out uh, in the Senate debate, is that where the president and his party control the Senate, they invariably do nominate and confirm Supreme Court justices. It's when there's split government that you get inaction. Uh, on a Supreme Court nomination or on many, many other things. And this is a victory for uh, President Donald Trump. It's a sort of thing that the Republicans who support him would have said they very strongly wanted in terms of reform of the judiciary in a much more conservative direction. Do you, do you think it's his, it's an achievement? I mean, many uh, aspects of Donald Trump's presidency you clearly find to be reprehensible, but do you think it's an achievement to have changed the Supreme Court in this way? Well, it's, uh, it's a, it would be a mischaracterization to say that he was trying to appoint conservative justices or conservative judges. Uh, g- going back to Ronald Reagan, the, the effort, and sometimes uh, successful, sometimes not successful, was to appoint judges who knew how to behave like judges. They are not policymakers. They are not legislators. They do not write statutes. They are to enforce the 
Constitution or the statutes as written. We call that originalism, meaning what was the original intent of those who wrote the language they are interpreting, not what do I, a modern, woke, 21st century moral person, think the law should be. What is the law in front of me as it's written? That's what a judge should do. That's a very strong support for the originalist position, which is you knew far better than me as you've got a proper legal training is is already contested really from the moment that the first generation the founding generation uh, passes you're, you're, abs- from no, you're absolutely and- wrong about that you're just absolutely wrong about that the the idea that judges in black robes set policy is fundamentally anti-democratic fundamentally anti-democratic. And those who adhere to the idea that judges are wiser than the people and can write better laws, uh, I I think uh, risk doing serious damage to our constitutional structure. Let's turn to the the broader implications of the the election, particularly for the Republican Party. And this is uh, something I think you've you've given a, a lot of thought to. What does this presidency mean, win or lose, Donald Trump, for the Republicans? Well, I think Trump has to be treated as an anomaly, uh, as an aberration. Uh, Trump doesn't have a philosophy. He doesn't follow a grand strategy. He doesn't even think in what we uh, typically call policy terms. Uh, He's not a conservative. That's not to say he's a liberal in the American definition. Uh, He's he's neither one. He's Donald Trump. Uh, For him, everything is transactional. Uh, And in fact, uh, uh, my former colleague, now deceased, Charles Krauthammer, once said, you know, originally he thought Trump behaved like an 11-year-old, but he came to realize he was 10 years off, that Trump behaves like a one-year-old, that everything is seen through the prism, does this benefit Donald Trump? So that's why I think win or lose, but particularly if Trump loses, Uh, After the election, there needs to be a serious effort within the Republican Party to cut this albatross off from around our neck. Uh, And I think uh, Republicans are even now thinking about that. They're focused on their own individual races or races that they're uh, concerned about in the Senate and the House, governorships and the like. But after the election, uh, uh, following a Trump defeat, I think this conversation will be way underway. When you say cut this albatross off, do you mean in terms of something like the the worldview of Donald Trump as well as the way that he has conducted or misconducted himself? I mean, I find, and tell me if I'm wrong here, Mr. Bill, but having visited America and been present for a lot of American elections probably since the late 80s, early 90s, I find it quite hard to think that we could go back to... You could call, you know, stripy tie Republicans sort of a more Brahmin way of dealing uh, with conservative politics. Am I wrong? And, and things could simply go back or will they change to something else? Well, Donald Trump doesn't have a worldview. Uh, and I think uh, the, the, uh, the, the Democrats would like to do nothing better than to characterize the Republican Party as being Trump's party, which it is not. Uh, I think that uh, the Republican Party remains fundamentally a Reagan-esque party. Uh, and I think there are uh, ways of, of uh, adding to many of the voters that uh, Trump has brought into the party. In many ways, the blue-collar uh, workers who are uh, voting for Trump in some of the industrial Midwestern states are the 
contemporaneous uh, parallel to the Reagan Democrats, people who came out of the Democratic coalition, the New Deal coalition, and came into the Republican Party. And, and I think uh, we, we can both welcome them, but also bring back into the party uh, many of the people that Trump has pushed away. That's, that's what we need to do successfully going forward. If you got rid of the, the albatross, as you put it, I mean, what kind of candidate would you like to see running to head up a reborn Republican Party? Well, as I said, Ronald, I, I was thinking about writing in the name of Ronald Reagan uh, for president this year, but I, I finally concluded he was unavailable. But but if, uh, if, if we had somebody, it would be Reagan, a, a person who believed in increased freedom domestically and uh, peace through strength internationally, and who had a sunny disposition, who, who uh, had faith in his fellow Americans, who uh, understood that uh, as president he represented uh, all Americans, and who, as he said many times in his speeches uh, and said uh, very uh, emotionally in his farewell address that he had seen America as a city on a hill. Uh, and it was inspiring to many people. And, uh, and I think with that kind of candidate and that kind of philosophy, uh, it won't be long before there's another Republican in the White House. Are you spotting anyone you'd like to see putting, putting in a first stage application for that role? Well, I, you know, there, I think we're going to have a long list of people who are running because I do want to be part of this post-election conversation. I'm, I'm not going to get on board anybody's campaign in the near term. I think it's uh, I want to help out those who are trying to sort through things before we get into the 2024 campaign. Now, make no mistake, that campaign has already started. The 2020 campaign may not be over, but the 2024 race has already begun. And that's, uh, that's just in the nature of politics. But as I say, I'm going to try and confine myself for some period of time here to this uh, more immediate task of, of repairing the damage that we've suffered. And if Donald Trump should win, could would confound expectations. But as as you say, that is it is possible, still possible that he could could come out of this victorious. What would worry you most about a Trump second term? Well, as I try and explain in the book, uh, many of his decisions in the national security field were not based on a careful weighing of the pros and cons and costs and benefits of the of the different policies under consideration. Typically, they were based on what he thought the domestic political blowback would be if he went one way or the other. Taking politics into account is very natural in a democracy. It's true for every Democratic leader. The difference for Trump was that politics was not simply a factor in the decision-making. All too often, it was the factor. Once he's uh, re-elected, if that happens, uh, he will be largely free of those kinds of political guardrails. He will be unconstrained because he cannot run for a second term. I think that he will give vent to many of the ad hoc and, and uh, instinctive uh, ideas he had in the first term. Uh, and I think... Uh, are you suggesting it would be, for those who are scared by Donald Trump, even scarier than the first term one? Uh, well, I think I think that's possible. I think uh, not only uh, obviously will he have been reelected, but because of the Democratic uh, miscalculation, I, I would I would judge it to be a catastrophic miscalculation of having to try to impeach and convict him and remove him from office unsuccessfully. That they went about it in a way that uh, did not set up structures of deterrence to constrain Trump in a second term by 
by conducting themselves in a way that led to his acquittal by the Senate, the pro-impeachment forces actually empowered Donald Trump. Uh, and then I think that was very dangerous. You criticised the effort to impeach Trump, not so much for the idea itself, as I understand it, before incompetence for focusing on the wrong thing. So what should have been the focus? Where were the other bodies buried if they were? Well, I think there was a lot more that could be done. And I think that, uh, that you can see from the only historical analogy that really applies, and that's uh, Watergate where Nixon was not actually impeached or convicted, he resigned, but, but where it was made clear to Nixon, privately and publicly, by Republicans, that he could not survive uh, politically and that he would be convicted if it came to that in the Senate. That's what led Nixon to resign, so that ultimately Watergate resulted in Nixon leaving office because it had become bipartisan. Uh, the, the, the way the House Democrats proceeded was to make it entirely partisan from the beginning. They were driven uh, not by reasons, high re- state reasons of high state, but by the schedule of the Democratic presidential nomination. They wanted to get the impeachment done before the primary started, which I think is an illegitimate reason. But the I, way I they- suppose I thought that part of your objection was that they weren't focusing on the right things, on the right targets. Well, that's, that's correct, and that's because they were driven by the schedule. They wanted to rifle shot the Ukraine issue, and they didn't want to consider uh, broader implications. And by doing that, they drove Republicans into a partisan corner in the House, and they essentially guaranteed a partisan outcome in the Senate. This is just a matter of arithmetic. The Constitution requires two-thirds majority to convict in the Senate. The Democrats made no serious effort to get that. I would like to ask you about the Uyghurs allegation that you make in the book, which is, again, denied by President Trump, that he told Chinese President Xi Jinping that the building of internment camps was, quote, the right thing to do, close quote. So did it surprise you in June when President Trump then authorised sanctions against Chinese officials involved in this mass incarceration we have been reporting on, of course, throughout and very thoroughly in a, in a big piece that, that we ran in the last few weeks? Uh, no, no, it didn't, nor would it surprise me in 2021, if he wins a second term, that he would reverse his position yet again. Uh, the, 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 this, is, this is not somebody who is applying consistent logic to a sustained policy. In the first three years uh, of his administration, Trump sought from China what he called the deal of the century, the biggest trade deal in history, uh, on serious issues involving Uh, structural approaches by China to the rest of the world, stealing intellectual property uh, and the like. Uh, And he didn't want anything to get in the way of uh, his pursuit of the deal of the century, including in the early days of the coronavirus pandemic when he didn't listen to people on the NSC staff or other government agencies saying coronavirus is going to be a big problem. Uh, As it became clear that the Uh, extent to which China had covered up the coronavirus and thus made it hard for the rest of the world to deal with it effectively, uh, American public opinion, and I think public opinion in Europe uh, and elsewhere, turned against China. And therefore, so did Donald Trump's. And as people began to blame China for the human cost, uh, the human suffering, the economic cost, uh, Trump began to refer to the China virus and the Wuhan virus, and he did impose sanctions. Uh, And he did raise tariffs and he did close the Chinese consulate in Houston because it served his political interest to do so. You're known for your hawkish 
uh, views on foreign policy. What is the right calibration on China? We could take the Uyghurs as a, a human rights, massive human rights violation. But I suppose that there is an argument which goes, well, Donald Trump in some ways was trying to hold back people like John Bolton. They are hawks. They always go the full tilt, whether it's on Iran or, or, or China. And I'm, you might gain say that. But have we learned anything different from the Trump era on handling China? No, I don't think so. I think uh, just to take another example, uh, companies like Huawei and ZTE, which appear at first glance to be telecommunications companies, but which are, uh, in fact, arms of the Chinese intelligence state. Uh, And the Huawei effort, for example, through uh, heavily subsidized uh, uh, work and financial terms from China, Uh, was trying to take control of fifth-generation telecommunications around the world. It was something that the U.S. saw very late. If we hadn't been warned by Australia, I'm not not sure we would have fully anticipated it. But now you can see all around the world that uh, uh, countries are recognizing that Huawei is not a commercial company. So Britain has moved in the same direction, Germany, and a few days ago, Sweden, for goodness sakes. All those hawks in Sweden have banned Huawei uh, from their telecommunication system. So I think this was important to do, and uh, it didn't come easily with Trump. He was prepared at one point to give Huawei uh, back its status as part of the trade negotiation. All you Swedish hawks out there, get in touch and tell John Bolton you exist. Uh, Russia must come to Russia. I'm sorry, no in the last five minutes. Uh, Where do you think that the US policy now stands on Russia and what needs to change. And we could perhaps look to a future in which may well be President Biden uh, dealing with Vladimir Putin. Many complexities, trading wires, and obviously lots of controversy about President Trump's relationships with the, the, the Kremlin. But what needs to happen? Well, you know, speaking of hawks, uh, if you look at the United States today, you would think that the Democratic Party had carried the heavy weight during the Cold War of opposing communist efforts uh, against the West. And my response would be, uh, I'm glad they've come around better late than never, that they see what Russia is up to here. Uh, There's no doubt that in 2016, Russia did try and influence American elections. They uh, are trying it again this year. They did in 2018 as well. China, to come back to them for a minute, has a far greater effort. Uh, As Vice President Pence indicated in a speech in 2018, not just to influence elections, but to influence political discourse in the United States broadly. Uh, I think efforts to do that constitute an attack against the Constitution. I think we need to respond to it. I think we are responding to it. But if someone says, like, John Bolton, this is the guy who tore up the Iran deal, that tearing up deals that have been painstakingly been put together previously, including with allies, including the, the UK, France, Germany and others, that does not seem to be working well either. It is not simply a case, is it, of, well, when will everyone come around to the sensible position of being a hawk? It doesn't always cash out that way. Well, I think when a deal is adverse to the interest of the United States, it's not just wrong, it's dangerous not to get out of it. So uh, I've I've been proud to get out of a lot of bad deals that the United States got into, and uh, there are more out there we should get out of as well. Uh, Just because something was painstakingly negotiated doesn't mean it's a horrible mistake, and the Iran deal qualifies as a horrible mistake. You call your book The Room Where It Happened. A nice nod there to to Hamilton, the musical. If Joe Biden wins, you found yourself in the room with President Biden. What sort of advice would you give him? 
the same advice I gave to Donald Trump, uh, the same advice I would give to any American president, but I'm not waiting by the phone for that to happen, that's for sure. Uh, Joe Biden himself, I mean, in many ways, I was thinking particularly on foreign policy, I listened to Joe Biden speak in London a couple of years ago. He's not on many issues a million miles away from you as he's more at the, the hawkish end of the Democrat-centrist spectrum. Well, well, I think uh, what we don't know about a Biden administration is how Biden's own personal views will interact with the left wing of the Democratic Party, which uh, has made itself felt on domestic issues. We haven't had much discussion in this election about foreign policy, so we don't really know how this will come out if there is a Biden administration. But uh, I think what he would represent would be coming back uh, as Warren Harding uh, campaigned on in 1920, a return to normalcy. Biden would be likely a normal democratic uh, administration on foreign policy. So if he's inaugurated on January the 20th, I fully expect on January the 21st to be criticizing his foreign policy. But do you think Joe Biden is up to the job, broadly speaking? Yes, I think he's a man of character and I think he can I think he's been particularly in the national security space, he's been involved in it during his entire uh, tenure in the Senate. And uh, last thoughts, retirement advice if it comes around for Donald Trump? Well, I don't think he's going to go graciously. I think he will be the crazy uncle tweeting from the basement for a long time. And uh, I think it's it's been detrimental to the body politic in the United States. I think his personal style of attack uh, is, he's not the only one who engages in it, but uh, he's the the, uh, the most advanced practitioner. And I think it's damaging to civil society when that becomes the norm rather than the exception. So I wish he were going to go away, but I, I, I don't think that's remotely possible. So I'll, I'll be around along with a lot of others to deal with it. John Bolton, thank you very much for joining us. Well, thanks for having me. Well, we'd love to hear your thoughts on all of that. Are you convinced that John Bolton's vision of a Reagan-style post-Trump party is possible? And finally, and perhaps most importantly, which president from history would you choose to have in charge in the White House for the challenges we face now? Write to us, radio at economist.com, or you can tweet us at Economist Radio. And if you like what you've heard, we'd be so grateful for a rating on Apple Podcasts. For your best introductory offer, go to economist.com slash podcast offer. The link is in the show notes. I'm Anne McElvoy, and in London, this is The Economist. Traffic jams, tailgating... Pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.